Well, I'm turning this morning to the 16th chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter number 16, and we'll take for our text this morning verses 1 through 7. Matthew 16 verses 1 through 7. Um, my intention today is to break up this account, uh, one single account, into two separate messages. So we're going to deal with the first half of this thought today, and then we'll conclude it uh, next Sunday. But Matthew 16, beginning there in verse number 1, I want you to notice the words as they are spoken here, and notice the attendance to this uh, declaration that our Lord is making, and also some of the characteristics of what He is accusing uh, His hearers of. Beginning there in verse 1, it says, "...the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting, desired Him that He would show them a sign from heaven." He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it. But the sign of the prophet Jonas, and he left them and departed. And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Now the account really of this particular narrative goes forward in verses 8 through 12, and I'm going to intentionally refrain from uh, speaking on those verses today and just zero in on these first seven verses. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, many of you may or may not know, I don't want to make any assumptions here, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees, although they're appearing to the Lord as a united people group, they were really in complete opposition to each other uh, in principles and in conduct. Now, there's no doubt they're here for the same purpose, which verse 1 tells us that they are here for one reason and one reason only, and that is to tempt Jesus. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not two groups who agreed. Uh, they joined together for the cause of tempting Christ. So we need to first understand that this is not a group of people who believe the same way. These are two groups with the same agenda, which is to tempt Christ, each one having its own reasons as to why Christ should be tempted. But both of them, both of these groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, desired something, a sign. Now this sign that they desired was a sign of their own choosing. In other words, they said, this is what we want you to do. We want you to show us the sign of our choosing. Now, we know from the narratives in the Gospels that Jesus has been declaring and showing signs from the very beginning. There have been signs not only as he walked in his earthly ministry, but the signs of the Old Testament have peppered the landscape. There is, there's no doubt that the signs have all been there. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted their signs of their own choosing. 
You see, they despised the signs that had already been given to them because some of the signs had called them to the need and the commandments that they were to be following. There were signs that called them to relieve the necessities of people who were sick, to aid the sorrowful, and oftentimes were called to do something else that would help someone in need. However, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees shared a common characteristic. They were both very prideful in their approach to God. The fact that they even had a, a thought that they could come to our Lord and demand a sign of their own choosing from Him is the epitome of blasphemy to say, I can command you to show us a sign. It certainly would gratify their pride if Jesus would have submitted to that and said, okay, sure, I'll show you a sign. What sign do you want to see? But you'll notice, and we'll look at the narrative, that Jesus answers the question basically to rebuke them, to reprove them. It certainly is a a great state of hypocrisy when a person denies the signs that are so clearly already have been declared for the coming of God and the things that he's going to do and to exchange them for signs of our own choosing. That's exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing. We don't want the signs you've already given. We want the signs that we choose. Now again, the key word here is the word tempt. Uh, this is, this are, there is not a good intent here. Uh, this tempting that is being done is not tempting in order that Jesus is going to do something that's going to be helpful. Uh, they wanted him to do something that would make him deny himself as much of what their signs and their requests often were. Now what I want to do is we're not reading through this entire, entire chapter today, but I want to give you quickly an outline of where we're going. And, and again, I don't know, uh, some, some of this helps people to have an entire uh, outline, ch- uh, a chapter outline so you can see uh, the map, if you will. Uh, but in the first four verses, and this is primarily what we're going to deal with today, is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees require a sign and Jesus refuses their request. Okay, that's the first four verses. The Pharisees and Sadducees require a sign, and Jesus refuses their request. In verses 5 through 12, and we'll get into part of this this morning, Jesus warns his disciples against what our subject really is, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and explains his meaning. Now, he's going to pull what's happening with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you're going to see that this becomes a teaching moment for the disciples, because they are going to misunderstand what's actually happening in front of their eyes. In verses 13 through 20, we see the people's opinion and, and Peter's confession of Christ. The people's opinion and Peter's confession of Christ. Verses 21 through 23, Jesus foreshadows his own death and rebukes Peter for attempting to persuade Jesus from going to the cross. That will be make for an interesting sermon, no doubt, when we get there. And then verses 24 through 28, Jesus shows that his followers must deny themselves to follow him to glory. Now each week as we work through this, I'll make mention of those two headings. So primarily we're looking at the first heading and then part of the second heading this morning. So first of all, let's consider this 
requirement of a sign and the refusal. Um, what these Pharisees and Sadducees were doing, this is not the first time. Uh, I know it's been a, a great amount of time since we've been in Matthew chapter 3. But if you'll turn there with me, Matthew chapter number 3, Jesus had already been on to the plot and the plans of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All the way back in Matthew 3, uh, when Jesus first uh, comes into, uh, into view here, John the Baptist has been preparing the way. And we'll notice that in, in verse 7 of that chapter, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, John, even that early moment, was exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what he goes on to say is, is you're not truly repentant. You're not here for the right reason. You're not coming here to repent of your sin. Uh, he exposed them. John the Baptist exposed them. So there's a great opposition between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Jesus. But we also see a mention of the opposition, and I want you to see this, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What, what did each one of these groups believe? Well, we see in Acts 23, verses 7 through 8, I want you just to see the description that's given between each one of these groups. And we do see that there is a difference. So we're seeing this united front to tempt Christ, uh, but we see that uh, they were very zealous for their own beliefs. Uh, Acts 23, verses 7 and 8. Uh, actually, let's, let's, go back to, let's go back to verse 6. It says, But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had said so, or so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. All right, so we see just on the very uh, surface level of this, what one thing divided the Pharisees and the Sadducees was the reality or the belief in a resurrection, the belief in angels, the belief in spirits. Okay, but the Pharisees believed both. So the division was that the Sadducees really uh, they had no belief in the resurrection. Okay, but here you see two groups now in Matthew 16 who have come to Jesus to tempt him, even though they're in opposition of what their own beliefs are. Now, I think that's really important for us to understand. What the Sadducees and Pharisees each had in this interaction with Jesus was that they were very zealous for their own traditions. They were very zealous for their own beliefs. So the Pharisees held to the resurrection. They held to angels. They held to the spirits. But the Sadducees denied all of those things but they were both enemies to Christ. Both groups, not friends to the cross and not friends to Christ. There are, brethren, many, many groups in the world today that are not friends of the cross. 
They may have differing viewpoints on different doctrines and different things about the scriptures, but that does not make them a friend of Jesus Christ. Neither one of these groups came with good intentions. They came with an intent of attempting to attempt Christ to do something contrary to his very nature. But we see the work of man. The work of a sinful man is to combine our efforts in order to discredit him. Make him do something that is against his character. Make him do something that is against his nature. And then use that against him to put him on trial. Remember, the desire was we've got to find a way to get rid of this man. All throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, it was about how do we get rid of this man? So, back to our text, we see specifically that their desire is that he would show them a sign. United as enemies of the cross, they come together to try to show and to test him into doing. And Jesus immediately responds in a masterful way. He answers them and says unto them, When it is evening, ye say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. Now, the request for a sign could have been thought of as many different things of what they may have had in mind. One of those signs which they had requested and had been given to them at one point was in John chapter number 6, verses 28 through 41. I know I'm giving us a lot of scripture this morning, but I think we need to see this. John 6, beginning in verse 28, it says, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe? Believe thee, what dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, the manna in, in uh, the desert was meant to be a sign. It wasn't just to feed them physically. It was a sign of he who was to come. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and in him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I am come down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, Jesus is making reference to a sign that was already given. This is a sign. The bread that was given, he describes it, he explains what it is, he explains the spiritual significance of it. So if it was the sign that they were after, if they were truly after the sign, then why did the Jews respond the way that they did? The Jews then murmured at him because he said, 
I am the bread which came down from heaven. I took us to that text because I want you to see there was no intention by the Pharisees and Sadducees to get to the truth or to believe any sign that he was going to give them. That was never their intention. Jesus had already declared to them that many signs have been given. The Old Testament is filled with signs that the Old Testament saint should have identified, should have recognized. The reality is, is they were dull of hearing because they didn't want to hear. They had no desire. They had seen the Lord Jesus do many miracles. He had pointed them to many signs. He had taught the people. And yet here you have them challenging him. Show us another sign. Not for belief, but rather as a way to tempt him. That's the motive of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So then that leads us back to our text, and Jesus gives them an illustration taken out of nature. He, in effect, tells them that you can make observations about the color of the sky. You can, when you see it in the evening, and you see that it is red, that tells you that the next day the weather is going to be fair. You can discern the sky, he says, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. This is an indictment against the signs that are all around them. They've already been given the signs. And he says, but no, you make these conclusions about what earth is doing, what nature is doing. And yet you're dull in hearing at making observations based on the scriptures and the will of God in them. You see, the Pharisees and Sadducees were not left without signs and they were not left without a witness. You might observe these signs in the sky, but he says, you don't even see the signs that are fulfilled in me as the Messiah. Jesus himself, of course, could have had a number of signs in mind as he was saying this. He doesn't particularly quote a scripture here, but he could have been referring to Isaiah 7:14 which prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Jesus, of course, was born of a virgin. He may have been prophesying and given the sign of Micah in Micah 5.2 that he would be born in Bethlehem. He may have been prophesying Genesis 49.10 about the scepter never departing from Judah. He could have referred to the sign of John the Baptist coming in the power and being mistaken for Elijah to prepare the way as spoken in the, in the prophets. Speaking of the signs of he who would come and open the eyes of the blind and stop the ears of the prophecy, as we saw, make the tongue of the dumb to sing, make ears able to hear, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Jesus is in effect rebuking them, you have had sign after sign after sign after sign, and yet you still won't believe. You're spending your time discerning the sky to try to determine what the weather is going to be for the next day, but you're so dull of hearing, you cannot discern spiritual things. That's what's at the heart of this. These are all signs that they were given. Signs of the time when Messiah was to come, but these things, he says, you cannot discern. You're like a company of hypocrites. All the way back in Matthew 3 when he told them, you are hypocrites. You don't do the things that you tell other people to do. 
And now you're asking me for a sign. You've had so many of them, and yet you still will not believe. Notice then Jesus, in a very direct, very stinging way, says a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Now, lest we be pulled into the snare of believing that the generation seeking after a sign have ceased, I would ask you to reconsider that fact. We have a whole generation of Christians who are asking for more proof. They're asking for more signs. They're asking for a reminder. They're praying for another Pentecost. If you think that's a minor request, you're sorely mistaken. That's asking for a sign. There are no other signs to be given. To go out and to tempt God by saying, God, if this is truly you and this is truly your will, show me a sign. Jesus said that is the sign of a wicked and adulterous generation. And Jesus, in under no uncertain terms, says no other sign will be given. So what about that person who claims they have a new sign from God? Are they really getting a sign from God? Not according to Scripture, they're not. Then where are they getting that sign from? From the wickedness of their own heart. The person who wakes up in the middle of the night and says, I've had a dream about something Jesus is going to do, and it's something, it is just earth-shattering. It's totally contrary to Scripture. That's not a sign from God. Jesus clearly says it's only a wicked and adulterous and unfaithful generation, a hypocrite, that would actually request a sign from me. And Jesus says there's not going to be another one. There's not going to be any other signs. Now again, we might say, well, Jesus is being a bit harsh here. This is not the first time he's dealt with this. Back in Matthew chapter number 12, beginning in verse 34, he says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Now you'll notice, if you paid close attention to Matthew 16, he makes reference to Jonah again, and he already did this once in Matthew 12. He says the sign of the prophet Jonah, that's already happened. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be there, or be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now the textual critic just thinks the story of Jonah is just a story about a man getting swallowed by a big fish. Jesus says, oh, it's much more than that. That that actually what you saw in the sign of Jonah being swallowed up was actually a picture of what's going to happen to the Son of Man who is going to be put into the earth for three days. And just like Jonah was cast up upon the seashore, the Son of Man is going to burst forth as well. 
Isn't it interesting that Jesus says there's not another sign other than that one coming? You know why? Because that was one of the greatest signs that man could have ever seen. The greatest sign was the sign of what happened with, with Jonah. Jesus, of course, as he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation, he's declaring to them their hypocrisy and say, you pretend to be the children of Abraham, but you are a wicked, adulterous generation. You're not the children of Abraham. Jesus, in other accounts in the book of John, makes mention that Abraham rejoiced in my day. Why did Abraham rejoice in the day? He was rejoicing in the fulfillment of the signs and the, the promises. He rejoiced in the day when I would come. Jesus is telling them, there are signs at your door. You are, you are bombarded with the reality that I am the Messiah. Isn't it interesting that Abraham believed without a sign? That's quite remarkable. Abraham didn't need a sign to believe. And Jesus is telling them, I've given you many signs and you still won't believe. So who is it in our world today that's still asking for a sign? People who don't believe. No believer, no true believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ is asking for another sign. No believer is praying at night saying, Lord, give me another sign to prove you are who you say you are. Unbelievers might be. Or hypocrites might be. The hypocrite wants to take some kind of credit. The hypocrite wants to have some kind of a fulfillment out of, hey, look what I was able to do. Jesus said there's no other sign that will be given. The sign of the prophet Jonah is enough. In other words, if that's the only sign you have, that would be enough to prove I'm the Messiah. In that former reference, you'll notice in Matthew 12, and those verses 34 through 41, he really he emphasized one characteristic of that. The characteristic he put his finger on was the three days and the three nights. But you'll notice in Matthew 16, he refers more to Jonah as a type of himself. In other words, there's the factual aspect of it. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be. But in our text here, he says there's no sign given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas, the entirety of the sign. That Jesus' resurrection, of course, would be the sufficient sign that would, would complete all of them. What is it about Jonah that typified Christ? Well, we understand that Jonah himself was thrown into the sea by the sailors. We also see that Christ, in his laying down of his life, man did not take it from him. Jonah was cast into the sea. He was saved by those who were in the ship. Christ, by his death, his burial, and his resurrection, have saved the children of men or the sinner. Jonah, after being in the whale's belly or the big fish, it's probably more appropriate. There's no clear evidence it was a whale, even though the children's story says that it was. Three days cast upon the dry land. Christ, after three days, rose from the grave. We also know that Jesus made mention of the Ninevites. The Ninevites, through the preaching of Jonah, they were brought to repentance 
there was the fruit of what happened there. So Jonah here is described as a eminent sign or a type of Christ. Jesus, you'll notice what he does back in our text. He says what he says, and he left them and departed. He has no further interaction with them about this account. He says there is no other sign. He doesn't go into a discourse, an explanation, and say, come on, fellas. He says, it's already been given to you. There's no other sign coming. So the Bible tells us that he leaves and he departs. The account in Mark chapter 8, verse 13, says that he entered into a ship, departed to the other side, and he goes into the coast of Galilee. And Mark's account doesn't even mention the story of Jonah. So Jesus leaves the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But now I want you to pay attention for the time we have left today, how the disciples react to what they just heard and what they just saw. And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Okay, now this is, this is exactly what it sounds like it means. They forgot their, their provision of earthly bread. They forgot it. They didn't have food. Jesus, upon that realization, says to them, Then Jesus said unto them, his disciples, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Get the picture. They don't have bread to eat. They do not have the provision of bread. Jesus interjects, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What do the disciples think he's talking about? Well, look what it says. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have taken no bread. Verse 6, the disciples say, Jesus is saying, beware of the leaven of the, of the Sadducees and the Pharisees because we're lacking provision. That's not what this was about. They think that Jesus is saying, don't go to the Pharisees to get your bread from them. That's not what he was talking about. He was saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They did not take physical bread in the ship with them, and he charges them, take heed and beware of this. They reason, they come to the conclusion that Jesus is saying this about beware of the leaven because we forgot bread. The disciples, that's reasonable. Jesus is just, he's rebuking us because we forgot our bread. Just as I said that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were dull of hearing, I want us all to understand something this morning, that it is not beyond the realm of possibility that Christians, believers, can become dull of hearing. To where you misunderstand, and I misunderstand what God is really saying. We call it a misunderstanding. We might say a miscommunication. We might say you need to rephrase it another way. This is an example of where the disciples are still dull of hearing. This goes a lot with what we talked about at 10 o'clock this morning about the reality of thinking we have it all right. Thinking, oh, I know what's going on here. Now remember, it wasn't too long previously where the disciples had already said in, in Matthew 13, 51, here were the words of the, of the, the disciples. Jesus asked them the question, 
He says unto them, have ye understood all these things? They say unto him, yea, Lord. He was asking in the midst of a bunch of parables. And he says, do you understand these things? And the disciples probably like our account in the book of Proverbs today, probably quickly and hastily said, sure, Lord, we understand. But they didn't. They don't understand the Lord's meaning here of why he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's cautioning them not against going to the Pharisees to get a loaf of bread. That's what they think he means. He's warning them about something much greater than that. He's talking about this leaven. They did not understand what he was saying and they had concluded that he's just speaking to them with a reference of their forgetfulness as if he was only warning them, don't go to the Pharisees and the Sadducees to get your bread. That was not the Lord's intent. That's not even close to what he meant, but that's what they thought he meant. The disciples by their own testimony, said, we understand them all. We understand the parables. I think there's a level of application here that our spiritual hearing can become dull. And we become very quick in telling God and maybe telling others, I understand this. I fully get what the Lord is saying. I understand how all these pieces go together. I, I understand fully. But is it possible that we could also be dull? Or is that heart that we talked about at 10 o'clock, that wouldn't apply to us? I know the intents of my heart. I know the motives of my heart. I know every one of them. There's nothing left wanting in my heart because I know my heart. No, the reality is we can become dull to where we get to the place where we think we understand spiritual things, but we're actually viewing them through physical eyes. You realize this book is not a book that you can set along with the New York Times bestseller and understand it in the same way. You don't understand this book without God. You don't understand a single chapter, a single verse, without the Holy Spirit giving you discernment. It doesn't matter what level of a professor teaches, quote-unquote, the Bible. You know one of the most popular courses you can, you can uh, sign up for in secular, you know, secular universities is a study on the Bible? I can assure you, you're not getting a perspective of the Bible from a spiritual perspective you're getting it from human reasoning. And the whole intent of having a Bible class at a secular university is not to confirm Jesus Christ, but to tear him down. Imagine, could a believer actually sit under a teaching like that and become so dull of hearing that they start to reason in themselves and saying, you know what, maybe that professor's got a point. Maybe, maybe Jesus Christ isn't who he said he was. Oh, that could never happen to me. I've been a Christian way too long. I have great understanding of the Word of God. You can become dull of hearing. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying you lose your salvation. 
But if you think that we don't become dull and sometimes we think we understand what God is doing and what God is teaching us, that that can't happen to us, folks, that's spiritual pride. There are times we don't fully understand. There are times that it is our motives and our intents that are driving us to say and do. Now we know today that we cannot make an unbeliever believe spiritual truths. Folks, in our evangelism, and by the way, we're all called to evangelize. In our evangelism, you cannot make the unbeliever believe these truths. You can declare them as they are. I think one of the most important things we do on our week-to-week services we gather together is the public reading of Scripture. It's one of the most neglected means of grace in our churches. Or we give it, we read two verses publicly and we say, okay, there we've got our Scripture reading. Folks, one of the greatest things we do is read an entire chapter of Scripture and we read every word of it because we're not relying upon man to convince the soul We're relying on the Word of God to do it. Now, God may use a man to preach a message, but it's the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, that makes that effectual. Our spiritual understanding towards the unbeliever ought to be, listen, unless God opens their eyes to the truth, they are not only dull of hearing, they are void of hearing. An unbeliever can be here today and be void of hearing the command to repent and believe on Him. You who are saved, when I say repent and believe on Him, do we know what that means? We should. And I'm not talking about it in a superficial way. You should know what that means to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But to sit and expect an unbeliever to fully understand all that or reason it, they don't fully get that unless God opens their eyes to that. But what about us as believers today? Is it possible that maybe even in our own personal life that we've become dull in our understanding? As you can see, we'll see this more next week. Even the disciples were prone to display times of little faith and times when they grew dull in hearing and in understanding. Now next week, when we resume this in verse number 8, I want you to realize that Jesus, it says when Jesus perceived this, why they were reasoning, He says, O ye of little faith, why reason you among yourselves because ye have brought no bread? And then Jesus is going to ask that question, do ye not yet understand? In other words, you still don't fully get what I'm teaching you. And he's going to really give them three accusations or three charges of what he's finding wrong in them. And he brings these three specific charges against his disciples. Again, he's not calling them unconverted. He's not calling them a wicked and adulterous generation as he was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the challenge for us to think about today is can we become dull? And biblically speaking, we can become dull. We are warned about searing our conscience. We could be here today and say, listen, I heard every word you said today, Pastor. I heard every word that you said, and I understand it all. It's possible that we reason just like the disciples did, and maybe we don't understand the spiritual things like we think we do. And only God 
through His grace, gives us that ability to understand. But we are prone also to lean onto our own understanding. So we'll pick up in verse number 8 next week and we'll deal with what Jesus observes and then how He deals with His disciples in a very stern way, but also in a way that is very loving with them. So I hope that will help us. Well, as we prepare to observe the Lord's Supper together today, uh, you can remain seated. We are going to sing hymn number 442, 442, and then we'll have